Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, an author, a fighter, a podcaster, a teacher, and above all else, a thinker. Hello and welcome, the host of the History on Fire pod series and so much more, Daniele Bellelli. Hello again. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming by. I have really been looking forward to talking to you. I um, I don't even know if this is a thing that can happen, but I feel like I'm becoming intellectually depressed. Why? How is that working? Okay, so so tell me something. When you Okay, somebody asks you that you just meet in passing, what do you say you do for a living? Uh, <laughs> drug dealing. Drug no, dealing? No, not quite. Um, I do a lot of things. I mean, I teach in college. Mm-hmm. I teach at Castel Long Beach and Santa Monica College. I uh, host two different podcasts. I'm a writer. So, you know, I'm I'm doing about 72 jobs at once, and uh, they're all related. I mean, basically, it's funny because all of them are about storytelling, ultimately. Okay. They are all related to the same thing, how to tell compelling stories that are powerful, that hook people in. And whether they are in an academic context or in a podcast context or in writing, it's kind of all dancing around the same stuff. Do you think, Would do you like doing, I have lots of jobs too. Mm-hmm. I actually really like having lots of jobs. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's in my professional best interest to be so scattered, but I'm I'm always looking to take on more things, not to winnow down. Would you ideally like to be doing one of the things you're doing? Exclusively? Um, I mean, sometimes, yes. Like, there are moments where, for example, writing is a bitch if you're trying to do it without the time commitment, you know? It's like if you need to have the time to sit down and just have hours and hours on end. If you're doing other things, that's not going to work very well. Because it's like, okay, I got my three hours. Now, two hours in, I finally am hitting a stride. And okay, now, five days from now, I'll have some time again. Yeah, that's not really the way you want to write. I've co authored books, which is not the, quite the same thing, but start working on a book when you start after dinner mm-hmm. every day is not an ideal way. No, it's no, terrible. No, 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 exactly. So, I mean, sometimes, yeah, I would love to focus. But at the same time, the other part is there's none, nothing, in all, among all the things I do, there's nothing that I want to give up either. They're all enjoyable. Right. So it's, you know, it's, uh, I just need to stop whining and just take care of business. I drew it out of you. So when you wake up in the morning, I'm I'm happy to say, and I don't know how many people get to say this, that I'm excited to get to work. Mm-hmm. What, what are you excited about doing when you get up? I think what I dig, because I don't really... Like, none of the things I do, I care for them in and of themselves. I mean, technically, I'm a historian, but I don't really care about history for history's sake I or the things I write or anything. I'm interested in the measure in which these things can excite people, can make somebody inspired, can make uh, can help me or others elevate the qualities of their lives. That's what interests me. The What we do to get there is an excuse. 
you know it's like it's purely a means to an end is not really the point and you know yeah i can get excited about uh, history or martial arts or this or that but that's you know my own weird little nerdy niche the what the real point is what do we do with it that's what interests me and this is why i'm intellectually depressed to tell because i have never felt more pessimistic about people's willingness or ability to embrace anything beyond very simple ideas, mm-hmm. overly simple ideas that are s- simple to the point of, of, of obscuring the truth. Sure. And the point has been made far too many times, but it doesn't make it less true. People's lack of interest or willingness to consider ideas from outside of, let's say, their social group. Yeah, and I think... I mean, part of the problem with that, what you're referring as this oversimplification of things, that's uh, life is messy, life is difficult. It's hard to entertain multiple ideas at once. It's hard work. And so clearly people gravitate toward what, for lack of a better term, is dogmas, simple dogmas, simplistic dogmas. Because why? Because they are safe. You know, you always have an answer, which is why it's funny. I notice a lot of people who are touted as public intellectuals is like when somebody asks them a question I 99.9% of the time know how they are going to answer not because I'm psychic but because they are going with a playbook right they are going with the thing they are going to say every single time that's their shtick and they are going to stick to it because it's recognizable it's simple oh we want the atheist guy or we want the hardcore religious guy or we want the guy you know it's there's the label that you attach and you just go and perform a role. But that, to me, is the enemy of real thinking, which is you're thinking on your feet. You're thinking maybe you change your mind that day or maybe you got some new information or maybe that's really... I love that, but it's hard work. And for most people, life is hard enough and why do we want to mess with that? Right. You very recently tweeted, I'm more interested in Kim Kardashian's ass than in the cumulative body of work of 99% of those touted as public intellectuals. And I'm not that interested in Kim Kardashian's ass. Who are these public intellectuals? I'm unaware of public intellectuals in our in our mainstream life. Uh, Man, it's like just my Facebook feed is invaded by people who are commenting on so-and-so or this other guy kind of going like, oh my God, this guy's a genius. And I'm like, man, your idea of a genius is sad. Yeah, we've set a pretty low bar for that. Yeah, some of... And again, the names are irrelevant, to be honest, because it's like if he wasn't this guy, it would be somebody else, you know? What I don't like, what I was referring there was... The vibe of some of these guys who, A, take themselves way too seriously. Like, to me, a red flag anytime is when somebody's lacking any sense of humor, particularly self-humor. You know, that's strike one. That's a big problem right there. And two, in many cases, is over... People who like to hear the sound of their own voice, and so they go on with this big spiel, and it's like, really when's the last time you made a kid laugh when's the last time (laughs) you actually did something that has an impact on real human beings who are not stuck into this little nerdy game you're playing and i don't know it's precisely because i value ideas i don't value joyless ideas ideas that don't really and i I mean granted this is my own personal subjective take right because while i consider 
ideas that lack any potential to affect anybody's life and maybe somebody else works for them in which case you know i'm not the dictator of the world that i'm saying these are the good ideas it's like you know i understand you know some of it is a judgment call but generally speaking i see a lot of that around which is why kim kardashian's ass may look more interesting by comparison i mean it is fascinating in its own way i suppose so what do you think that you are doing so you said that you want to not regurgitate history or research history mm-hmm. for its own sake you want to inspire people and there are people i know this you you can it's an interesting experiment actually if you there are um there are many people that if you unfollowed everybody that you followed on social media and then followed some a, a person who's on it maybe like an athlete or mm-hmm. something like that and just followed all their feed and looked at their feed for a little while you'd have a very different take of what objective reality was because everybody is sort of choosing their own reality i am well aware of the fact that there are i would like to say millions of people in america who are interested in truth mm-hmm. and the betterment of themselves and the betterment of human society but they seem um fatally outnumbered sure i mean and i think that goes in every time and every place throughout human history you know the that's just the nature of the business exceptional individuals are exceptional by definition you know like having talent vision heart uh, integrity yeah that's great and lots of people have those qualities mm-hmm. but you know just by percentage sake not the majority ever anywhere is it crazy that now you recently had the flu i recently had the flu mm-hmm. and i have always gotten sort of brain sick when i get body sick i start sure. i become a little bit crazy of course and then tamiflu i found introduced its own level of insanity mm. to the mix and i got paranoid about Ooh. the um the existential dangers facing the world nowadays the yep. the 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 north koreas and the what have yous and it, the point's been made many many times that you watch the news and they go and that's why the world could explode tomorrow sure but in lighter news but for for whatever reason that was my time and my place to go yeah but what if i have a child i have another child mm-hmm. on the way what if and i haven't really shook it since then it's been a couple of weeks and i don't suspect but i have this growing fear that we really could be entering a new dark age i think that's always right around the corner not mm-hmm. that it's going to happen but that the potential is always there sure because i don't know that it ever really went away it's just a matter of like you know when was it going away when uh, you know a computer glitch three decades ago could have started nuclear war between you know the soviet union and the united states mm-hmm. when uh, the black plague was killing one third of your population when, you know there's always some potential catastrophe there and not just potential stuff does happen and it can be really 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 bad well isn't it i'm sorry to interrupt you overly simple but is it inaccurate to say that there was a closing of the western mind once the catholic church solidified its power in cahoots with the monarchies and there was an opening of the western mind with the enlightenment and with the industrial revolution so in very 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 broad terms i do think we had a dark and then a light period and somebody sent i hate myself for saying the sentence i'm about to say somebody sent me a link to an article on buzzfeed about 
well, here are the things that could be used for misinformation. They're already being used on the internet, but could be used... um, Fake videos, so there's plausible deniability of anything. So many realistic bots on social media that nobody knows who's really saying what. And it doesn't need to convince people of that so-and-so said this or, well, I heard that. It's just, well, there's so much noise here, and we all know some of it's true and some of it's false, so I've decided I just can't even be bothered to try to figure out the truth anymore. And we're sort of already there, but it yeah. potentially gets so much worse so quickly at a time when authoritarianism is on the mm-hmm. rise so many different places in the world. It seems like a really particularly bad stew that we're simmering at the moment. That's a fact. There's no argument there. At the same time, I think some of the current panic on some of these things is just because you're more aware of it. Uh, 70 years ago, some of the same power games were played by behind the curtain and you never knew about it. And mm. it was like, my government clearly has my best interest at heart. And, you know, it's like, it's not necessarily that the games were that different. It's that they weren't in the open. Now, you know, cat is out of the bag. Everybody mm. sees what's going on. Everybody kind of gets that game. Feel powerless to change it and yet sees it. Which is a horrible... Right. right. Decades ago, you just didn't know that you were powerless to change it because you didn't know there was a problem to begin with, but of mm-hmm. course it was there. And that's yeah. sort of a classic definition or symptom cause of anxiety mm-hmm. is being upset about events that are in your present in your life but feeling powerless to affect them. I saw this morning, who cares if it's true or not? I'll name mm-hmm. the name just to make it specific. That So there was the awful shooting at the school in Florida, and then, of course, there are the inevitable conspiracy theories, and then supposedly, according to a headline that I saw online, our president's son liked a couple of tweets about how one of the kids who was the survivor of that, well, his dad's in the FBI, and he's the cover. And I did think exactly what you're saying. Now, for all I know... Jackie Kennedy harbored all kinds of bizarre theories that we never knew about because there was no forum for Mm -hmm. that and nobody would have asked her and it would have never gotten out of tea parties and wow, that Jackie Kennedy's a real piece of work. Good thing her finger's not on the bomb. We don't know that. It's possible and it's likely that there were Mm -hmm. crazy people at the highest levels and we just didn't have as much access. We were not able to see how much crazy there was. Definitely. And I think that's just the nature of the business. We just know more now. And that goes with post-1960s the degree of cynicism has gone up because we know more, plain and simple. It's not that before the good old days were really that good. It's that the good old days pretended to put on a better face and people didn't see what was going on behind. You know, it's like, it's one story if you fight wars where there's no footage and you can tell whatever stories you want about that things are going. When you hit Vietnam and suddenly anybody with cameras that are now priced in a way that some reporter can go independently and show what's actually happening on the ground changes the perception of the whole thing. You get a water gate kicking in, suddenly it's like, oh my God, this stuff happens at the high level in government. And it's like, of course it happens. It happens all the time. You just, now you're aware of it. That's it. That seems like such a silly, innocent little, and obviously the governments of the world were up to things that were not silly and innocent at that time, but a break-in. They tried to break uh-huh. into the other party's headquarters yeah. so they could see what campaign banners they were making. I mean, it's just, it's it's child's play. I mean, I was studying right now, I'm preparing an episode of History on Fire about this one uh, started out as a street gang in Rome in the 1970s and they ended up becoming like one of the most powerful criminal organizations in Italy. And some of the stories that they got involved in, you're like, come on, this is like straight... Uh, 
you know, murder of a journalist who had exposed a guy who had been seven times prime minister of Italy, his mafia ties, promptly murdered, and then, you know, all these these gangs' weapons being found uh, in the dungeon, like under in the basement of. Um, I love how I phrased it, the dungeon. <laughs> That's <laughs> in the basement of one of the state government buildings. You know, it's like these shady things. They are like, come on, this is just crazy conspiracy theory. And, you know, 99% of the time, crazy conspiracy theories are just crazy conspiracy theories. Yep. But then there's the time when they aren't. <laughs> Every single time I talk to Jesse Ventura, I talk to uh, my friend Sam Tripoli, who has a conspiracy theory podcast. And the, it's so tantalizing because I, I said to both of them, like, I know 10% of what you're telling me right now is true. Sure. But there's no way. But you don't know what 10% exactly. <laughs> it is. And I don't know. And, and in all likelihood, we'll never really... You and know. I think there's an element there that is intellectually lazy because he's trying to argue that there's somebody out there who's mm-hmm. in control, which is reassuring, right? Because yes. even the bad guy in control, at least there's a sense of control, rather than That's... we are a bunch of monkeys mm-hmm. floating in space <laughs> doing the best we can. That's and... exactly what it is. Ultimately, yeah. you would rather believe that there was an evil Wizard of Oz than yeah. Pers- yeah, well, well put. Do you keep current with what's going on in Italy and just Italian politics nah, and society? Pointless. It's just it's, Italian it's crazy. is the same crap forever. It's just ridiculous. Um, it makes our system look functional. Yeah, seriously. It's <laughs> it's pretty much a joke. So are you a citizen here now? Yeah. Okay. Um, I have citizenship in both countries. I gotcha. Gotcha. One last thing on the whole the world's going to end thing before we move on and talk about the stuff you've been working on. I, I'm always interested to know it's so hard to be objective when you're in the fish tank yourself. You've obviously lived in America for a long time, but do you feel like you have any insight into American culture and American discourse at this exact moment in time because you're not from here? What do you think as a quasi-partner? Sure. I mean, there are things that, and I come from you know a Western capitalist country. It's not that I come from a completely different system, and sure. yet there are still are differences that are significant enough that you go like, whoa, that's way different from the way. Like one thing that I find really odd about modern life in US is uh, the degree of loneliness that people experience, you know, how alienated people are from other human beings in the sense that, you know, we live in this super affluent society, comparatively speaking, there are all these opportunities and yet people are as miserable as they could ever be. And it's the paradox of success, right? It's like you have achieved all the material success you can get and it's still not delivering the goods because what's happening is most people have very, very little social life. You know, the price of mobility, the price of being able to chase the job across the country and advance your career comes at the price of lacking roots, lacking any sense of, uh, you know, when people, you know, people's idea of family or friends is like, yeah, we see each other for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And it's like, yeah, that's rough. You know, that's not how human beings are built. Human beings are built for tribes. Human beings are built for an extended family, community, that kind of stuff. Now, for me, Italy didn't have enough of that. And then coming here, I'm like, oh my God, give me back Italy on that, you know, because at least it was considerably better than what I got here. Now, here there are other things that are awesome that I really love. So it's not a, you know, superior, inferior in absolute terms. Of it's not. specific things. I'd have to think Italy is one of the, less commented upon trends in the world is it's almost like how many 
species of animals are going extinct mm-hmm. all at the same time. How many traditions that existed for hundreds, if not thousands of years, are all breaking in in a matter of a generation or two? Yep. How many languages are being lost? And I've read, this is happening all over the world, but Italy is a terrific example of, you have a family that's made things out of leather for generations, and that was just what you inherited, and you lived outside of the city. And then the kids come of age, and they have a little bit of money because their family has a successful business, and they go... Want to make shoes? This is I don't want to cure meat. Are you crazy? I'm not going to press olives for my entire life. So I think that a lot of what you're talking about is smaller countries. I'm sure people can go home for the holidays, Mm -hmm. but I think there's a lot of people just going to Rome and being successful and lonely there too. Yeah, totally. Uh, That's part of just the modern world. Uh, Way more so in the United States. Okay, both in terms of how much people work. I mean, like. What's the average job in U.S.? You get, what, two weeks of vacation a year? Yeah, two, three, right. Two weeks is crap. Are you kidding me? You know, unless the job you have is the most amazing job that fulfills you and you wake up every morning going, yes, I mm. got to go to this job. <laughs> if it's not that, and, you know, the experience of the overwhelming majority of people is not that, then you're essentially just biting, you know, waiting for the time when you can be, quote-unquote, free, Except that when you have two weeks and you have worked 50 weeks a year at some soul-sucking job, people often get depressed when they are on vacation because suddenly they have this feeling of like, now I can do whatever I want and I don't really remember what it means to be me. You know, what is that I want if I don't have to do these things? Now, if you have a month off, five, six weeks, something, you have time to switch gear and see your life in perspective and go like, whoa, 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 I need to change some things. This is not working. If you have two weeks off, you just have time to feel a little weird and you're back at the wheel and and off you go. And it's not that we stop working at 40 or something where you say, yeah, okay, you work really hard, but it ends. And then you have a lot of people work to their grave. And so it's like there's something about that system that's not not exactly ideal. It's not, it's not designed for, all right, there is ideal if uh, profit is yeah. what counts. It's not really ideal if you're considering somebody's happiness as a goal right right this is what late stage capitalism looks like my dad has told me a couple times my dad's older that when he was working in the 70s he would read articles and they would say so they've invented this thing called a computer Mm -hmm. and it's going to do all sorts of things so many of the menial tasks that you perform will be taken care of in the future by the computer so let's talk about all of the things that we are going to do with our free time when we're all working like four hours a week and the crazy thing is that you always read, oh, we're going to have space hotels, we're going to, and then somehow the technology never quite delivers. Computers completely over-delivered on the promise of what they would be able to do. It is amazing how I started working at a time when I was on a radio show, and when we wanted to know what was going on with so-and-so artist, somebody would open a file cabinet mm-hmm. and pull out pieces of paper yep. of what was going on with Pink or Justin Timberlake. It was the very tail end of that, and that is... That that job doesn't exist anymore. Of course. Not that I think it was all that rewarding a position at, at the time. <laughs> but it's completely over-delivered on its promise. And women have fully entered the workforce. So we've doubled the amount of mm-hmm. labor that we have, essentially. And somehow people have less time yep. than, they, than my dad did in the 70s. Yep. And these are the things Americans ought to be arguing mm-hmm. about. Absolutely. And it's not, there's no easy solution. 
you know, mm-hmm. because it's not that the there are issues that are both economics. You know, it's like in the 1950s, you could have one person go to work and support the whole family. A lot harder to do that today. Some issues are cultural. Some issues, you know, there are a bunch of things. But to me, that's what interests me. It's like, okay, how can we redesign a system, which doesn't mean get rid of all of the existing stuff. There's a lot of great stuff in what exists today, but how can we make it serve us as opposed to us serving this machine? You know, how can we make technology, the modern world, the internet, everything serve us so that we get to have a higher quality of life? Because to me, that's really the only question that really interests me is how do we elevate the quality of life? How do we increase the occasions for happiness? How do we increase the occasions for fulfillment? I don't care how we get there, as long as we get there, right? I don't yeah. have a specific ideology I want to endorse. Mm-hmm. I don't have a single plan. Could not care less about the specifics. All I care is the goal. The specifics only interest me in the measure in which they deliver the goal. If there's another way that's better, pfft. I'll drop the one I'm doing and we'll switch to the new one in no time. You know? So do you feel like you have personally found any widely applicable life hacks for joy? Because that's what we're talking about. You're talking about contentment yeah. uh, as a baseline and and joy. Yeah. And and that's one of the things about phones that people people talk about, all, all, you know, it's bad because of this, bad because of that. A phone cannot give you joy. Mm-hmm. And joy is essentially the greatest well it's not the greatest good i guess love is the greatest good but joy is the greatest candy well life and, has to and offer. they go hand in hand sure, right because right. it's like it's love of why does it feel good because it makes you happy you know? but i don't even think most people would i wouldn't expect most people to put it in so many words of my life is about taking care of what i need to take care of so that i can pursue joy but i don't even feel like in other terms people think about their life in in those terms mm-hmm. yeah with that objective it's... I mean, like, if we think back about the job situation, for example, most people, it's funny how, you know, like, most people, there's this tendency to look down on prostitutes because it's like, you're only doing it for the money. And yet, when you stop to consider what people do for their work, how many people would do the job they have if you, they weren't getting paid and they can pay the bills with it? You know, embrace your inner, your inner hooker. That's just the way it is, you know? It's like, most people are slaves to something that they don't want to do. They just have to jump through the hoops and, you know... And I don't know that you could rejigger the system where most of the work that needs to be done to keep society working is kind of not that exciting. I agree completely. In fact, the point in that scenario is not necessarily on a social level. How do you redesign? Well, I think there are two different levels. An easier one is the personal one. So I'll start with that. You know, on a personal level, how can you find a job situation that's not soul-sucking and where you feel like a slave uh, to the machine, you know? that's the That to me is one of the most interesting questions that anybody at 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, go through the years should be asking themselves because that's the rest of your life, you know? If you don't answer that question well, you're screwed, man. And you're screwed for decades at that point. And in our culture, it's almost encouraged, if not highly acceptable, to say, oh, you don't know what you're doing. Don't worry. You'll figure it out later. You'll change majors a bunch of times. And and I think that's a, a, a heinous mistake. And, you know, I don't... Sure, it's very likely that you're going to change your mind. It's very likely all of those things. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be asking the question anyway. And again, maybe the change in your mind is just because you figure out a better strategy mm-hmm. to deliver a lifestyle that gives you happiness. Yeah. That's fine. That's totally cool. But still, the goal, the end goal of figuring out 
okay, how much money do you need to live? Be realistic about it, figure that out. Uh, how much free time do you, do you feel that is absolutely necessary for you? What are the other things? What are the other priorities that are key to your life that feed you, that make you wake up in the morning excited? Okay, how do we design a lifestyle that contain at least most of those things? That to me should be homework every single day, you know, is what you think about because, and instead so much of what we do is so an exercise in hoop jumping, you know, learning how to jump through hoops and just, oh, good job, now you uh, we can check this box. But it really doesn't address the basic question of why are we doing all this? You know, what's the point? Right. And so that's that that to me is step one on an individual level now on a social level i think there are things that can be done to encourage some and again no conditions you're gonna set up are gonna guarantee everybody's happiness that's never gonna happen i get it but certain conditions make it a little easier for individuals to make choices in that direction and other conditions make it a lot harder like for example on a social level one thing that we need to figure out is sort of what I was referring to earlier about loneliness. How do we combine the great benefits of individualism, of our ability to just shut the door, screw the rest of the world, you have your space, you have your house, you have your thing, with the fact that people are lonely as hell and they need more human content and you need more community and you need more even basic things, you know, relationship with the food you eat, you know, having a damn garden and having something something that allow human beings to connect again to some basic things that are that are key to human to humans fulfillment yeah it's it's funny you're making me think about the fact that uh at least for some period of time my mother-in-law is going to be moving in with my family mm-hmm. and i how many movies have we seen oh, like like about a boy or whatever where there's the person who doesn't want the extra human connection because they have if if they're going to have some sort of established continuous human connection in their life they've decided it has to look like this or look like that and then something comes along we maybe you've had the experience where you have the elderly neighbor that sure. is annoying to you at first and then all of a sudden they become it's amazing where valuable human contact can come from and you've given me hope that maybe it's not going to be so bad <laughs> to live with my mother-in-law let's move on i uh want to ask you about your history on fire podcast you just wrapped up a series on gladiators yep what was it about that subject that makes it historically interesting and makes it you think interesting in our present day and age well, it's kind of trippy to think of a society in which uh, the number one form of entertainment is uh, death fights in the arena. That tells you something about the psychological makeup of the people in the society. And at the same time, I find it funny how people think that's so distant from us. I mean, I think if we're having death fights at Staples Center, the tickets would be just sold out a year ahead, you know? It's like, oh, I don't yeah. think we are that different. Is we consume violence more in fictional form. We consume it in, you know, watching shows on TV that create it in the most realistic fashion possible. But I think that fascination is always there. Now, some of it, the way I saw it about the gladiator things, some of it is just fascination for... It's the same way people watch car crashes, right? It's like the fascination for the dramatic, the something intense that shake you up. But then there's another side to it, which is the one that interests me the more. That That's not the one that we point the finger and go like, oh, look at that 
kind of crap. But what interests me is the fact that gladiators in some way provided a model for toughness, for bravery, that everybody went to see. Like part of one of the reasons why people went to see the fights is because you wanted to be inspired by somebody in absolute desperate conditions who's going to be this one individual in the middle of the arena with 50,000 people watching and nothing guarantees their safety except their own skill and their own toughness. And even more interesting is what if things don't work your way and eventually maybe you do lose or maybe you can get killed in the arena. That bravery with which people would kind of laugh at death right in front of them that provided a model that was useful for everyone else because everyone else would eventually get sick and die or get old and die and bad things happen all the time around you so the arena was just this um, spectacular moment in which somebody's facing the existential threat that faces all human beings and if they could do it in this particularly powerful way that's something that you could borrow for your own life. Do you think that anybody who was alive during the gladiator era would have put it in so many words? There is a something there about... They do emphasize the idea of bravery okay. a lot. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that keeps showing up about the, the more... Because there are both very negative commentaries about the gladiators, and some of them for very good reasons, and some of the positive ones. The positive ones tend to emphasize that a whole lot like there's a Roman philosopher Seneca was like one of the classic stoic philosophers mm -hmm. kept emphasizing how essentially without openly saying it he's saying that gladiators are a model in stoic philosophy because they are applying all those values right there in the arena in in 15 seconds what's stoicism um life is tough nothing is gonna make it that much easier you need to figure out a way to deal with it. Deal with it. Despite the fact that the outcome may be completely out of your control. You know, you may not change the outcome, but you need to change your attitude. Uh, the quote that's on your historyonfirepodcast.com website from Seneca, he who has learned how to die has learned how not to be a slave. That's a powerful one, man. Because it's like we are all, to some degree, slaves to our fears, most people are to one degree or another ruled by their fears what they choose to do what they choose not to do the chances they take in life all of that so what Seneca is telling you there is that once you accept the fact that ultimately you don't control anything ultimately the universe is going to open up its jaws and chew you down and there's nothing you can do about it that's not a happy realization but once you are able to deal with that then you are free to really live as a human being without being constantly pushed, bossed around by your own, uh, by your own fears. It's definitely an issue in our society, and it's a long list. And this one goes at the bottom, so nobody really talks about it. But there's a woman I've been reading some articles on and following online named I hope I'm saying her name right, Caitlin Doughty, who is um, she's like a coroner in Los Angeles, and she's her lane that she's establishing for herself has established for herself is she's the person who talks about death mm -hmm. and talks about the way that we ritualize death and the way that we process death and the way people have done that historically, the way people do that in other cultures. And we don't do a great job of... It's certainly in the back to the middle of the mind of every person I know who's mm -hmm. over 40 years old. 
and it's the one that you don't get past. I, I've kind of realized that. I, a long time ago, I read a quote. They said the only difference between people who are rich and people who are poor is people who are poor think they'd be happy if they were rich. <laughs> right. So it sort of seems like – and another thing that I've read is that everybody sort of has this default setting of contentment or anxiety or what have you. And supposedly, I don't know how you would have studied this, supposedly they talked to a bunch of people who won the lottery and a year later they were back to whatever level of Mm -hmm. contentment. People who lost limbs a year later were back to the same basic level of contentment. So it it often seems like that's, if you think of it like a video game, that there's the, the, the final boss that first you need to survive and then you need to get a job and support yourself. And then you need to get a partner and then you need to get children, assuming you do that, and raise them safely and to have them not be criminals. And then you need to worry about your retirement. And if you are lucky enough to be able to have the materials you need to not worry about all that financial stuff before you reach old age, there's just the final boss. That will yep. just become bigger and bigger in your mind because if you are a, per- a person who is predisposed to anxiety, something is going to make you anxious. All the time. And do you think it is realistic to – there are cultures, I, I believe Asian cultures, where people prepare to the extent that anyone can mentally and spiritually and psychologically for death. Do you think that that is a reasonable goal? Yeah, because, I mean, otherwise the problem is it's always, as you put it, you, it's always in the back of your mind. Yeah. You may ignore it, mm-hmm. and you may not even be aware that it's affecting you that much, but it is. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, that thought that ultimately you don't control stuff, that thought. I mean, people get mad if you, if there's extra traffic and you lose an hour on the freeway, you're all pissed off. And then you're thinking about the eternity, and we have no idea whether we even exist or not, whether <laughs> what happens. That's a bit of an unsettling kind of thought. So, of course, everybody, whether they are aware of it or not, has existential anxiety. And so figuring out how to deal with it is pretty important. You know, and I'm not saying that one day you figure it out and suddenly never shows up again. I think is like sweeping the floor. You have to do it on a regular basis to make sure that you keep it in check in a way that leaves you not only functional, but also okay with Mm -hmm. it. A lot easier said than done. Sure. I imagine it well it would take maintenance because we change the person that you or the the issues that you need to deal with the external things that you have to deal with internally will will change but also so will your attitude towards things. So if you come up with an answer that you can live with um like a separate piece. Everybody uh-huh. makes their peace with the the things that they can't affect fully or change. The piece that you make with it might that that truce might no longer hold ten years later because Absolutely. because death hasn't changed. Yep. yep. But but you have. Yep. Your mood changes. Your energy changes. Lots of things. Which leads me to the work that you have done with um, regarding Taoism. Mm-hmm. So what's the status of the Drunken Taoist podcast? You still yeah okay still on. And you also, I saw, did... uh, And what's the overall philosophy of that? What's your angle? The way I see Taoism is that, to me, it's not another ism, per se. Because, you know, most philosophies, most religions, most ideologies are based on a set of things that you have to accept. Taoism doesn't care what you accept or not accept. Their attitude is, this is the way the universe works. You want to understand it and be able to use that understanding to be able to flow better through it. Great. Here are the principles. 
you don't want to understand it or you try and you don't get it, nobody cares. It's still out there. The principles still operate independently on whether you embrace it or not, whether you don't need to have faith, the same way as you don't need to have faith that the fact that the sun is out there, you see it, same thing goes here. You know, there are certain things that are just how life works. And I kind of like that because, you know, most ideologies require you to embrace some type of we believe these things. There, there's really no belief in this. It's very practical. There's a very pragmatic element to it. You know, you want to take it and use it and it helps you, good. You don't want to, fine, no worries. So I enjoy that, the fact that people sometimes may be unconscious Taoist, you know, they may be applying Taoist principle all the time in their life and they just don't call it Taoism and it's fine, you know, you don't need to know that it's Taoism per se, it's just it's life and Taoism just happened to have done a good job at articulating some of these ideas, that's it. I love the myth of the Tao Te Ching, correct me if I'm wrong, right, that Lao Tzu had lived his life was old and was pretty much leaving the city walls to just go off and not exactly die that day in the wilderness but approach death yeah. in the wilderness and on his way out of town the the century says everybody knows you're the smartest guy in town before you go can you write down some stuff you figured out and he writes the Tao Te Ching yeah it's supposedly he said no I'm don't leave me alone and the guy uh-huh. said well tough luck I'm the guard here and I'm gonna throw you in jail until you give me something and so he's like okay fine give me some paper and just three days later he's like okay here is the Tao Te Ching can I go now thanks yeah. bye it's a nice story right it's always seemed to me it's essentially go with the flow that there's there's just a way things are pushing this is what I've taken well I'll tell you what the closest thing I was raised Catholic I don't have a any particular gripe with the the way the church has behaved obviously is objectionable in many ways but the the faith itself I don't have any problem with it it's just never um, felt animated Mm -hmm. to me it didn't I, I don't feel a lot of a, a strong life force coming out of that, at least the way it's been presented to me. So it just kind of leaves me cold. I don't object to it, but it does, doesn't do anything for me. And then one day, I was a pretentious teenager, and I ordered a mug from PBS, which had like six lines from the Tao Te Ching on it. And that mug, which unfortunately broke several years ago, is the closest thing that I've ever had to a life philosophy. And I'm sure you'll know these lines. The first one never made any sense to me. In dwelling, live close to the ground. Hmm. I don't, I mean, how big were buildings when Lao Tzu, anyway, neither here nor there. In thinking, keep the simple. In conflict, be fair and generous. I, I love that one. I think it probably, to my wife, makes me a pussy. <laughs> For me, it actually allows me to be very petty because I'll give you the first round. Okay, we disagree. Sure, you're right. But God damn it, the next time, I already gave you one. Right, You know right. what I mean? So I don't know if that's exactly what Lao Tzu had in mind. In governing, don't try to control. In work, do what you enjoy. In family life, be completely present. That is kind of all of the religion that I feel like I... I you need. need, right? <laughs> yeah, and I think that to me is what any good religion, any good philosophy, any good system of thought needs to do is give you the elements that allow you to, to have a good life. You know, that's what it's about ultimately is what are the ideas that empower you? What are the ideas that allow you to treat other people better? What are the ideas? You know, that's what's interesting to me, um, which is why, again, it's in something that you can find in like Taoist texts where they don't necessarily hammer in you, you have to believe these things, or it's very freeing 
it's very take it or leave it. You know, that is, in some cases, it's funny. They, their attitude is, you know, some of these is a bit too subtle for most people. Most people are not going to get it, and that's okay. Go down the street and go study Confucianism. They'll give you simple rules so you don't screw up things too much. They'll tell you, do this, don't do that. You know, don't even try to bother with Taoism because it may be a bit too much for you. You know? Oh, wow. I didn't realize I was in an elitist religion. That's even it is. better. It totally is. <laughs> oh, I mean, wow. it, it's funny, too, because we're straight. the religious aspects, Taoism is made of many different parts. There's a more philosophical aspect. There's a specific religious aspect. The religious one is kind of like the animistic stuff that Chinese people have done forever. And then, what, do you mean, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, there are like these shamanic practices that are about making sure that the spirit of the ancestors are pleased with you and they don't get mad at you. And, you know, it's classic shamanism, which in Chinese culture existed forever. And, you know, one person will attach a couple of Taoist ideas and boom, that's Taoist religion. Or somebody will attach some Confucianism and that's Confucian religion. It's like the religion is always the same. The Calling it Taoist or Confucian or whatever else is kind of a... Seal in a way. I guess all cultures do that. Like it, it was overrated the switch from paganism in the Western world to Christianity. Because yeah. I, I still have ants that pray to certain saints when they lose their car keys. Which of that's, course that's paganism. Yeah, yeah, and and I think so. That's that aspect of Taoism. But on a more philosophical level, which is kind of the one that interests me the most, because that's where those ideas can be applied to. You know, the religious Taoism is sort of culture specific make more sense for somebody who grew up in China during particular points in time. The ideas of Taoism are not. They can apply to anything and anybody. And so that's where I tend to be more interested in. And finally, you've done work. You continue to do work. I guess you do you teach comparative religion? Yeah. So you've compared them all. Uh, what's what's the best stuff to take from all of them? Where do you come down on comparative religion? It's a, it's a big question, but... Yeah, I think what I'm interested in specific questions, you know, like, because... And, okay, the thing is there are different layers of complexity because on one level there's rarely one religion as one answer. You know, it would be simple to think Christianity is about this or Islam is about that. No, there are like 10 gazillion variations on Christianity and Islam on this and that. And depending on which one you choose, that may be what you think that the religion is about, not necessarily. There's more variation within a religion that sometimes there are between religions. So I see, yeah. start with that, that makes it a bit complex. But the other thing too is let's talk specifics. You know, let's talk, for example, a relationship with, I don't know, sex, human sexuality. What are some of the different religious ideas out there? Okay, this one sounds like crap. I don't like it. This one seems really unhealthy and it leads to bad things. This one seems interesting. Let me run with it, you know. I'm interested in doing a a la carte approach to religion of figuring out on specific issues what are the answers that seem to be delivering the most promise in terms of making people happy, you know. And, uh, And even within the religion that would be, you know, look at... Christianity has on some level this very strict sexual morality or in some cases flat out anti-sex in the full celibacy in some variations on Christianity. And then you have other guys like there was, this guy was pretty funny, Carpocrates was a third century Christian philosopher slash preacher who argued that not just sex but sexual orgies were the key to heaven. And they are all Christian, but of course they're in, they're not, you know, they preach completely different things. Do you think it seems 
fairly obvious, well, it seemed a lot more obvious 10 years ago than it does now, but I still think the smart money is on the slow, continued, gradual decline of the traditional great world religions, at least the theistic sure. ones. You know, the I don't, I think Jesus has seen better days in, <laughs> in the culture, along with whoever else, but... Where do you guess we go from here? And I guess my real question is, I think that we're living in a transition phase. And whenever Mm -hmm. it's the end of the world as we've known it, um, you're inclined to think that is the end of the world. I just think we're watching an old world start to, Mm -hmm. it's pretty well into its decline at this point. And something new is going to emerge. And personally, and I think you feel the same way, I'm kind of comfortable with where we are. I like the choose-your-own thing. Yeah. I, I feel like I have a spiritual life mm-hmm. that I find basically satisfying. Talk to me when I'm on my deathbed, but so far, so good. Can you imagine the emergence of a truly new world religion? Are people simple enough to accept a new godhead that we've never heard of before? Well, I mean, the point is, None of the existing answers are in any way provable, right? So and so that leaves a lot of room for people to run with things. Now you're probably not gonna be able to say, okay, in yesterday in this part of the world God showed up, appeared and told us this. Yeah, that doesn't work with cell phones and you know, that's not gonna fly as well. But the need is there. And so some way of conceiving the divine, some way of conceiving, you know, what's at the roots of the universe, all of that, that question is going to be there. People are going to keep asking it and people are going to keep filling in answers. So maybe not religion in the classical sense of the way it has been done, of like, I was up the mountain and God showed up to me and revealed me this. Mm. Less likely. But the need for it is still strong because people still die. People still have no idea what happens after they die. Yeah. So the need for some kind of answer is there. Uh, so that one I don't think is going away anytime soon. It is compelling to contemplate the idea of AI, it's artificial intelligence, as some sort of replacement because if something's way smarter than you, mm-hmm. it's you're inclined to think that it is perfectly intelligent. Right. And if something can tell you a bunch of stuff that you never thought of and it doesn't seem like... I mean, in our lifetime, we'll probably see some form of that thing. I guess it remains to be seen exactly what that thing might look like. Um, thank you so much for your time. We actually have to go. Cool, man. Thank you so much. Um, I feel like I should let people know about your book, Create Your Own Religion, a how-to with uh, how to book without instruction, since we've been touching on that. And we'll also let everybody know you are at D. Bolelli on social media. Uh, DanielleBolelli.com HistoryOnFirePodcast.com Anything good coming up on that? Uh, lots of goodies. Uh, okay. The story I was just telling you about Italian mafia stories are, are next on top. Excellent. Thank you.